grab a Bible and go with me to John 16. We're going to look this morning at the first 11 verses of chapter 16. We are in the midst of celebrating the Advent seasons. The the Gastons just led us in our Advent reading this morning. Advent is another word for coming. As we approach Christmas, we're celebrating the first coming when God's Son became a man in Jesus. But we know from our Bibles that Jesus' first coming wasn't the end of his mission. His first coming was actually part of a larger mission that would bring all of God's saving purposes to their completion. That mission would include his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his return to glory, where he reigns for a period of time before he comes again in judgment. The words we look at this morning are some of Jesus' last words to his disciples before he dies on the cross and returns to glory. And he gives these words to his disciples to prepare them to live between this period of time, between his return to glory and his coming at the judgment. This is where you and I live too. We live between the time when Jesus returned to glory and where he comes in judgment. So, it would do us well to listen to how Jesus prepares his disciples that we, like them, might be ready for Jesus' return and know how to live under his present reign in heaven during this age. Verse 1, Jesus says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues, indeed, The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness And judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks for this opportunity to come before your word together as a church. I pray that your Holy Spirit would illumine our minds to the truth. And make Jesus look beautiful, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, what I want to do is walk us through three big ideas in our text and then spend some time drawing out some implications for our lives. And the first big idea is this. Jesus speaks for the disciples' perseverance. If, if we glance back to chapter 15, uh, we see that it's going to be pretty rough for the disciples once Jesus returns to glory. The same world that hated Jesus would start hating the disciples. That's chapter 15, verse 18. The world would even persecute the disciples just like they persecuted Jesus. Chapter 15, verse 20. And now, in verses uh, 2 and 3 of chapter 16, we see the specifics on what they will actually face. Isolation and martyrdom. Isolation. They're going to be kicked out of the synagogues. Their family members and best buds won't want anything to do with them. They'll shame them publicly by isolating them from their religious community. And they'll also face martyrdom. People will even kill them with what they believe are pure motives. As if offering service to God. And this is a huge deal for these disciples. Think of how they've grown up in Judaism. Think of how they've committed themselves to learning the scriptures with their Jewish family members. Think of what it would mean for these 11 to keep clinging to Jesus when their own kin crucify him for blasphemy. When their own religious authorities say he opposes the God that they have grown up knowing. It's one thing for Gentile atheists or pluralists of their day to oppose Jesus, but it's a whole other thing when you've got religious men committing to, committed to the Bible opposing Jesus. What Jesus makes clear for them here is that the religious establishment's rejection of Jesus is no reason for the disciples to reject Jesus. An earnest pursuit of God is no proof that someone knows God. A man knows God to the decree that he embraces the fullness of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 3, they do these things because they have not known me, they have not known the Father nor me. And you can imagine how this would also serve the readers of John's gospel who have these very questions swimming in their minds. Should I listen to the Pharisees? Should I follow Jesus? And how much more would these kinds of questions press upon the disciples when they start suffering? Do I really want to keep holding on to Jesus if this is what it's going to mean? Jesus says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away, meaning falling away from me. These things that I'm saying to you will keep your grip on me when it seems like all the world is against you. How will it do so? Well, the way Jesus' words generate faith in that moment is by giving the disciples a true perspective on their persecution. Or even better, a true perspective on who Jesus is in the midst of their persecution. For example, his words remind them that Jesus is the perfect revelation of the Father. These people want Jesus dead, not because they have a, a right view of God, but because they don't even know God. The proof is in their animosity toward Jesus, who perfectly reveals God. Also, 
His words remind them that Jesus is sovereign over persecution. He knows all things even before they happen. They will put you out of the synagogues, he says. The hour is coming. I have said these things to you that when their hour does come, you may remember. He knows. He's in control. He is sovereign. His words also remind them that Jesus is powerful to stop persecution one day. Notice he says, when their hour comes. In other words, that's all they've got. An hour. Now, he doesn't mean a literal 60 minutes, of course. We, we see throughout John's gospel that Jesus often uses the hour language uh, figuratively. To speak of appointed time set by his heavenly father. In particular, the hour of Jesus' death and exaltation. Or the hour when true worshipers are gathered from all nations into God's family. Or the hour of the final resurrection from the dead. Each of these are events that God ordains, that he plans, that he controls. And they're all associated with the inbreaking of God's kingdom on a world that hates him. We're getting something similar here. As God's kingdom breaks into a world opposed to God, there will be enemies that threaten the lives of those who follow the king. There's an hour our persecutors will get. It's even labeled their hour. Is this to say it's only theirs by permission? But it's an hour that will end when Jesus returns at the judgment to bring the kingdom in its fullness. For a time, persecutors of Christians will think that they are winning and they will tempt the world. They will even tempt the saints of God to believe that they are winning. How many of you have ever had fears creep up when you read of IS or Al-Qaeda or the prison camps in North Korea? Or maybe you learn of a friend in near danger of his or her life because of persecution. Jesus' words ensure that the persecutors are not winning and that they cannot win ultimately. It's only their hour, and during their hour, the disciple is to look patiently to Jesus with confidence that he is sovereign over persecution and will end it at the appointed time. And you can read the rest of of the book of Revelation to sort these things out. Second big idea is this. Jesus sends the Spirit for our advantage. You can imagine that Jesus' teaching in verses 4 to 7 baffles the disciples. I mean, he's going away. This one they followed the last, gave the last three years of their lives to, he's going away. He says in verse 5, I am going to him who sent me. And these words, you can tell, hit the disciples like a ton of bricks. They asked the same question a bit earlier in chapter 13, but didn't quite understand what Jesus was saying. But now, now that he's explained things a bit more, they're starting to catch his drift. He's not going to be present much longer. Their dreams of how they've always perceived the final kingdom coming are getting dashed to pieces. Their Messiah can't just leave. It hits them so hard, it says in verse 6, that sorrow fills their hearts. And apparently they're so preoccupied with 
grief and sorrow that they don't even think to ask Jesus why he must go away. But Jesus tells them anyway as as a way of encouragement. He must go away so that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will come. There's this connection between Jesus going away, returning to glory, and and the Spirit coming. This connection actually has its roots in the Old Testament, where the final outpouring of God's Spirit was associated with the establishment of the Messiah's kingdom. God made promises through the prophets, like in Isaiah 11 and and chapter 34 and 44, or Ezekiel 36 and uh, Zechariah 12 and 13, right there at the end. God made promises that linked the Spirit's coming with the saving work of his Christ, his anointed one, his Son. It was a time when God would cleanse his people from their sins and renew his people's hearts. A day when all nations would be gathered into one body, the church, and enjoy intimate communion with God through the Spirit. The people would all be taught by God himself as the Spirit brought forth inward transformation and renewal and wrote the law on people's hearts. Well, Jesus is pointing out that for him to go away means God's saving work will have been completed. Jesus' life would fulfill the law. His death would provide sufficient atonement for sin. His resurrection would seal his people's justification. His ascension would give him all authority in heaven and on earth. And now the Spirit, the Spirit would then come to fulfill his promised role of calling everybody's attention to that completed work. To that completed salvation. He would announce to the world that God's salvation is now fully revealed and fully accomplished through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and glorification. The long-awaited day for Messiah's reign and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's associated with the Messiah's reign was now here. And it's in this sense that it's It's good. It's good for Jesus to go away. When he goes away, it will mean that God's work of redemption is accomplished. Nothing more needs to be done for the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. And the Spirit was coming to declare that accomplishment to the world, to illumine our minds to that truth, to give light to people like us who were sitting in the darkness. The Spirit would come to show us the hope Jesus is for the world. To mediate Christ's exalted presence, not merely his earthly presence, but his exalted presence in heaven to the disciples. To pour out God's love in our hearts daily, like Romans 5 says. To, to, give, to gift the church in the spread of the gospel. And on and on we could go. It was better for Jesus to go away so that we might get the Spirit. It's as if Jesus is asking... Look, guys, which would you prefer? To be with me still in Galilee, where my work remains incomplete, or to be with me in my exalted status at God's right hand, where my work remains complete for you? The answer is obvious. And besides, aren't these disciples learning one of the most basic truths of the Christian faith here? The truth that God always knows what is better for us. Third big idea. 
The Spirit comes to convict the world. Spirit comes to convict the world. In particular, the Spirit convicts the world of three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. What does this mean? Well, he tells us in verses 9 and 11. The Spirit convicts the world concerning sin, verse 9 says, because they do not believe in me. Sin is linked with refusal to believe in Christ. Not to believe in Jesus is to reject God altogether and remain under sin's power. Meaning all you can do when you reject Jesus, all you can do is sin. Sin rules you. And not to believe in Jesus also means you remain guilty under and, and, and deserving of punishment. You remain under sin's penalty. You stand guilty beneath God's wrath without escape for rejecting his perfect revelation in Christ. We see this in places like John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the natural state of everybody that comes into the world. Nobody comes into this world as a lover of Jesus. Everybody comes into this world guilty of sin without any comprehension of our desperate need for Jesus. And unless we believe in him, we will all perish. Well, part of the Spirit's work, what Jesus is saying, is that, is that he is, when he comes, he convinces the world of its guilty state. He helps people recognize their need for Christ. And then he brings them to Jesus as their only Savior. We pick the same sort of ministry up in the life of Jesus himself, who John tells us, I've never seen this till this week, John tells us in chapter 3 that Jesus has the Spirit without measure. And then we get his ministry to the Samaritan woman. Right? And he's at the well with the Samaritan woman. And what is he offering her? Eternal life, which only comes through the Spirit, the the fountain of living water there, right? So he's offering this woman eternal life. She's, of course, dodging the issue. She changes the subject and only asks for what she thinks she needs until Jesus just straight up asks her, uh, tells her, go call your husband. And the woman replies, I have no husband. And then Jesus says, remember Jesus, who has the spirit without measure, Jesus says, you're right, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. That's pretty direct. That's pretty exposing, pretty convicting. Jesus does this, of course, if we go on to read in chapter 4, to win her soul, to get her to see that he is her promised deliverer. He has come to rescue her from searching for false saviors and serial adultery and to give her a true husband that will satisfy her soul with eternal life in the Spirit. Well, this is how the Spirit works. He comes to continue the ministry of Jesus 
he continues to convict the world of its sin, as Jesus did in his own ministry, so that the world might believe in Jesus. The Spirit also convicts the world concerning righteousness, verse 10 says. Because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now, he's not saying the Spirit comes and he, and he proves the world guilty of Christ's righteousness. Right? It's normally how we read these. Uh, it's, it's very easy for us to think in our minds um, concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Our sin, Christ's righteousness, and final judgment. But th- that's not exactly how, how these things are working here. He's not saying the Spirit comes to prove the world guilty of Christ's righteousness. That wouldn't make any sense. The world has none of Christ's righteousness. Rather, the Spirit is proving the world guilty of its own false righteousness when it's set up against Christ's righteousness. When the world rejects Jesus, it believes it's righteous in doing so. This is why the Jews crucify Jesus. They seriously think that what they're doing is righteous. They are righteous. I mean, after all, I mean, this man is blaspheming. It's against the law. Let's hang him up. This is also why people will kill the disciples, like we read earlier in verse 2. As if offering service to God, a righteous act before God. We see this even in Paul, before, before the apostle Paul is converted. He's killing Christians because he's absolutely committed it's the right thing to do before God. He thinks he's righteous. Uh, We see this righteousness in the Pharisees, too, like in Matthew's gospel, who outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So the world really believes itself to be righteous. The world tries to justify its rejection of Jesus. It tries to justify that it does not need Jesus. People try to justify why they're not all that sinful. They try to justify why Jesus' evaluation of its evil is so wrong or maybe even out of date. This is the world we live in. It's a world of, of false righteousness all over the place. Well, what Jesus is saying here is that the Spirit comes to convict the world of its false righteousness. And the way he does this is by pointing the world to Jesus' true righteousness. And here's what I mean. Had Jesus stayed in the tomb the grip of death would have proven that he was not a righteous man. Does that make sense? The scriptures teach us, cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. But what Jesus is saying here is that his going to the Father proves that he was righteous. Death couldn't hold him in the grave because he had no sin of his own, like the Gastons read to us earlier. Nothing about Jesus' character kept him from taking his seat at the right hand of Almighty God. This is what he means in verse 10 when he says, he's going to come and convict the world of righteousness because I'm going to the Father. When they see my righteousness, they'll be convicted of their false righteousness. For Jesus to go to the Father is for Jesus to be vindicated over all the opinions of the self-righteous world that in reality has no righteousness at all. 
The Spirit comes to cast the spotlight on the risen and ascended Jesus so that all people see he didn't die for his sins. He didn't die for sins that he committed. He died for sins that I committed. I'm not the righteous one. Jesus is the righteous one. And if I am to stand before God in judgment, I need his righteousness covering me. This is what the Spirit comes to teach the world. And then lastly, the Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment. Verse 11 says, because the ruler of this world is judged. The immediate reference isn't to the final judgment here, but to the judgment that happens to Satan himself, the ruler of this world, in the event of Christ's death. We saw this back in chapter 12, verse 31. When Christ dies on the cross, the ruler of this world is cast out. The ruler of this world is Satan. He's he's cast out. He's overthrown. Jesus smashes the tyranny of Satan's reign, and he overthrows his place of authority in people's lives. What the Spirit does when he shines the spotlight on Jesus' victory over Satan is prove to the world how futile their pursuits are in sin and lawlessness and immorality. Satan is the one that we've seen who blinds the minds of the unbelieving. Uh, 1 John 5.19 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 2 that before any of us knew Jesus, we followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is the, the devil. The world is portrayed in Scripture as following the devil. John 8 says that people make false judgments about Jesus because... Their father is the devil. Well, what happens when the Spirit comes and shows the world that the devil's kingdom has been toppled by the death and resurrection of Jesus? What the Spirit does is he shows the world that its evil leader and its kingdom has been toppled and once for all, and therefore... Your life is in vain if you keep pursuing that way of living. If the devil's works are destroyed, we've seen that in our Advent readings over here, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. If his works are destroyed, if his kingdom has been toppled, never to ultimately succeed, If the powers of darkness have been disarmed, like Colossians 2 tells us. If the stories that Satan deceives the world with have been proven untrue when Jesus walked out of the tomb. If Satan himself has been cast out. If we know that his final end is the lake of fire, Revelation 19 and 20. Then why would anybody keep following him? That's what the Spirit comes to convince people of. The Spirit's job is to convince the world through the proclamation of this good news that to follow the evil world system is to give yourself to a defeated and perishing kingdom. So those are the three big ideas. Jesus speaks for our perseverance. He sends the Spirit for our advantage. 
And the Spirit comes to convict the world in these three ways regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. So what I'd like to do now is draw out some implications uh, these three big ideas have for our lives. First of all, we need to remember that Jesus always speaks for our perseverance in the faith. And it would do us well to listen to him. Just like he speaks for these disciples' perseverance, Jesus still speaks for our perseverance in a hostile world. And he does that through the scriptures. He speaks to keep us clinging to him for everything. When the world is against us, when Satan tempts us, when life itself seems impossible to bear, Jesus' words always are there to fortify our faith. Courage comes to the believer through the words of Jesus because Jesus always gives us the right perspective on the world, the right understanding of his kingdom, a right assessment of our circumstances around us in light of eternity, and a right vision of all that God is for us in Jesus. So the question for us becomes, are we, are we turning to his words? Are, are, is, is it our habit to listen to him speak on the pages of Scripture? I appreciated the words of J.C. Ryle here when he said, uh, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. This is what Jesus is doing for his disciples here. The way he has warned the disciples of their persecution and how to view that persecution. The way he has taught them about his sovereignty. The way he has equipped them with his work. All of it has armed the disciples to face the opposition with confidence. And for some of us, it would be good to view that passage in Ephesians 6 this way, the putting on the full armor of God. We're not to understand that armor apart from the word. Every one of the pieces of armor, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, all these things, they stem from what God's word says about salvation, righteousness, gospel of peace, etc., So this is how we're armed in the world, by listening to Jesus' words. Even here in our passage, whether it's it's the nature of the persecution or the promise to, to send the Holy Spirit to equip us, or the work of the Spirit to convict the world, all of these teachings help the disciples see that Jesus' cross, which is now only hours away, isn't to be viewed as defeat, but victory. Right? You can imagine the stories that, that would enter their minds when, when they are alone and their master is being hung up and now the world is turning against them. What, what is going on in your minds? You're creating these stories. Is this real? Is, I don't know about this guy. Maybe I should leave him. Fishing is looking a lot better now than persecution. You can imagine the stories that they're tempted to believe in the face of opposition. And Jesus is equipping them with these words that they might remember these words when things come their way and understand rightly their circumstances and who he is for them in their circumstances. Would you say you are turning to Jesus' words first to get a right handle 
on difficult circumstances? Would you say you turn to Jesus' words to continue persevering in the faith? These words were written so that we see Jesus speaks to us. He speaks for our perseverance. We must listen to him. Don't, don't try to persevere through, through man-made religion or self-help philosophies or just indulging in your flesh. Persevere through heaven-sent truth and grace, which we find in the person of Christ. Something else I think we should take away from this passage is the nature of saving faith. Saving faith is enduring faith. Saving faith is enduring faith. It is faith that perseveres. I was struck uh, by this sentence uh, by D.A. Carson. He says, The greatest danger that these disciples will confront from the opposition of the world is not death, but apostasy. The greatest danger you and I will face from the opposition of the world is not death, but apostasy. Church, our greatest danger is not death. Death has been defeated by Christ when he died for our sins. Jesus says in John 11 that he is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he Live. Our greatest danger is not death. Our greatest danger is apostasy, forsaking the one who saves us from death altogether, wanting nothing more to do with Jesus. Jesus bring this, brings this up elsewhere, doesn't he? In Matthew 13, he speaks of the four soils and seed that's been cast. Gospel seed has been cast on these soils. The seed that's sown on the rocky ground, it has no root. And when the persecution rises, the person falls away. Or in Matthew 24, there's a day coming. Jesus warns us that a day is coming when we will be delivered up to tribulation, hated by all nations, And many people will fall away. And the reason they fall away is because their love for Jesus grows cold. True saving faith perseveres. It keeps clinging to Christ in the midst of opposition from the world. So that means we should guard ourselves from any notion of the easy believism that's promoted in our day Or the idea that a one-time prayer sealed us for eternity while we keep living however we want. The Bible constantly characterizes true faith as persevering faith. It's a response that continues to look away from self to Christ. Like Jesus does here with the disciples, we must teach our children that following Jesus will not make their lives easier. If anything, it will make them harder in a world opposed to Jesus. Our exhortation to our children must be keep holding on to Jesus, son. Do you believe in Jesus, girly? Keep clinging to him. Girl, I call my daughter girly. Um, keep 
believing in him. Never let him go. The same should be true when we invite people to follow Jesus in our evangelism efforts. We're not calling them to an easier life. We're calling them to give up their lives to have Christ, to lay it down. We would do well to forewarn them of the cost of discipleship so that we might also forearm them for discipleship. But let's be sure we do this, and I want you to get this. Let's be sure we do this not merely by describing faith, but by declaring Jesus. Faith gains its strength in the midst of persecution. Faith gains its strength to endure, not when it sits there and scrutinizes itself, but when it sees the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. So let's encourage one another's perseverance by setting the beauty and the majesty of Jesus before one another, and our grip will remain strong on Christ. Something else, we must trust the Spirit to convict the world. Must trust the Spirit to convict the world. Yes, the Spirit empowers us to preach the gospel to the world. Yes, the Spirit uses our preaching to persuade sinners to win the world. Yes, the Spirit uses human means to accomplish His work, a.k.a. you and me. Yes, the world will perish if it does not hear our testimony about Jesus. But we don't do the work of conviction. The conviction is the Spirit's work. The Spirit sinks people in their guilt before God and then drives them to Christ. This is why some people have called the Spirit the hound of heaven. He pursues and pursues and he sinks people in their guilt and, and points them to Jesus and points them to Jesus that they might be saved. Which means that we should be faithful to preach our guts out and trust the Spirit to do the work. If we preach to people and they do not believe, yes, we walk away sorrowful and in prayer for their souls. We might even evaluate how well we're, we're, we're setting Christ and how clearly we're setting Christ before them should another opportunity arise. But we do not need to heap guilt on ourselves unnecessarily if we don't witness immediate conversions. We also don't need to grow impatient and frustrated with them. Would you just believe, you know, you get this feeling, right? You just want to shake them. Like, this is real. You don't need to get impatient and frustrated when people reject the Bible's claims. Trusting the Spirit's work actually liberates us. It frees us to, to continue loving them and pouring ourselves out for them and to serve them, not control them. Right? Any of us who are parents have first-hand experience that we cannot control the heart of our children. It's the same thing when we're sharing the gospel. We're not, we're not here to control people. We are here to preach the gospel, serve them, freely love them, and let the Spirit do its work. 
We also don't need to grow envious of that other guy's ministry over there who has numerous people coming to faith under his preaching. If we really believe that the Spirit is the one who convicts, then we will be giving thanks to God wherever he's at work in the world. We also don't need to resort to worldly means either to try to win people over. Popularity, new electronics, good looks, stellar media, even a particular method. This is a real problem in some of our circles. We hear of God doing an amazing work somewhere, thousands of people coming to Christ through somebody's ministry, and what do we do? We take notes on their method, publish a book titled Awesome Method, and then we try to replicate it in our own context, as if the mere method is just going to start churning out the conversions. And any dependence on the Spirit in prayer gradually moves to the peripheral while we keep selling our method. This passage encourages us to be faithful with what we've been given, to be faithful where we are with the gospel, taking all the sacrificial measures necessary to get it into the lives of others, and then trust the Spirit to bring the conviction. One way to evaluate whether you're trusting the Spirit to bring conviction is to see how much you pray for Him to convert sinners. If you're not praying for him to convict anybody of sin, righteousness, and judgment, what might that reveal of who or what you're actually trusting to save somebody? One more implication here. And I mention this one uh, for all of us, really, uh, but especially for those of you who don't believe in Jesus. And that is this. Listen to the Spirit's testimony this morning. Listen to the Spirit's testimony. This is the Spirit's testimony. You are guilty in sin. You have a warped understanding of righteousness. And your pursuits apart from Christ are empty and in vain. That is the Spirit's testimony to you. So check yourself for a minute. Would would you say that you believe in Jesus? And I don't mean, would you say you believe Jesus was a real person? Nearly everybody believes that. What I mean is that would you embrace as true all of the claims that he makes about himself? Would you embrace that he is God and the world's only Savior? And if so, would you reorient your life? around him and what he commands you to do? If you answer no, then the Spirit's testimony about you is that you stand guilty of sin and have no hope of eternal life. Because, as we've seen, to reject Jesus is to reject God altogether and to reject life with God altogether. Would you also be one to say, I don't need Jesus? I'm not that bad of a person. Are there ways you try to justify going about your life without him? Perhaps you think there are things you can do to to earn God's favor. The Spirit's testimony here is that you are trusting false righteousness. A false righteousness that characterizes all of the world. 
Regardless of what you think, heaven's testimony is clear. We are all bad people to the core, and there is nothing we can do to earn God's favor. There is no righteousness we can merit that would actually please God. The only righteousness that pleases God is that of Christ. And that's proven by his exalted status now in heaven. Would you be one to say you could care less about any of this? The Spirit of God says that you have bought into the lies of the evil one. An evil one who wants you to keep, wants you to be blind to the light of the glory of God in Christ. You've bought into the lies of an evil ruler whose kingdom is now overthrown. Whatever you try to pursue under his leadership will be vain, taxing, and only lead to further death and condemnation. Regardless of how many thrills it may bring you in this life, the only kingdom worth living for is that of Jesus. And so the Spirit, through our text here, is calling to you to come out of your lostness, to come out of your warped sense of righteousness, to come out of your satanic judgment, and to come to Christ. Do not resist him any longer. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come to Jesus. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. His salvation is free and complete. All that you need for forgiveness and reconciliation with God is free when you come to Jesus. It doesn't matter where you've been. Jesus' work on the cross is sufficient to cleanse you and satisfy your soul with God. And this is the Spirit's testimony. Listen to it.